This is a program brought to you by the Idaho Humanities Council. With generous support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and U.S. Bank, with me tonight is Dr. Seth Ashley from Boise State University and the author of News Literacy and Democracy. It's an honor to have you with us tonight and I turn it over to you. Great, thanks. It's great to be with you all. And uh, I'm excited so many people are uh, interested in this topic. I've got a, a ton of information to share with you, so I'm going to dive right in here. And um, I look forward to hearing questions and comments afterwards. So is that working like it's supposed to? It is, yeah. Far so good. OK, fantastic. So um, my, my title here is Beyond Fake News, News Literacy and the Informed Citizen. We've, we've heard a lot about fake news over the past four years. Um, but um, my perspective is that we need to uh, also see the, the news and media environment uh, much more holistically than, uh, than we're often asked to. So that's my goal tonight, is to give you some things to think about, um, especially in the context of uh, pandemic, election, wildfires, um, the many, many things troubling in our um, society right now. Um, I, I usually use this metaphorically. Um, unfortunately, things are actually on fire. Um, and somehow we're supposed to just kind of carry on. Um, I think this is how we feel a lot of the time these days because it does feel like uh, we're sort of living from one, one, one crisis moment to the next. Um, so uh, so how, how do we deal with that? Um, my, our, this says my desire to be well-informed is currently at odds with my desire to remain sane. Again, I think we, we feel that way a lot um, with our news consumption. Um, hopefully this, this all will help us uh, manage, our, manage our consumption a little bit. I think that's the role news and media literacy can play for all of us. What wine goes well with watching too much TV and worrying about the end of democracy? So it's easy to do a lot of unproductive worrying these days. Um, I think we can, uh, we can channel our energies productively if we, uh, if we know a little bit. Um, you know, again, the stakes are high, right? We're dealing with some really tough stuff right now, tougher than usual. Um, the worst yet to come supposedly uh, with COVID, we're certainly not out of the woods yet. Um, devastating wildfires out west. Uh, inject climate change into the campaign. So, uh, um, you know, it's almost a good thing that we're actually uh, talking about climate change a little bit more, um, but it's certainly a, a terrible reason to, to be forced to do it. Um, this is not new, of course. We've been, we've known for a long time uh, that this was a real issue and that, um, that we have a short window to do something about it. So these are, you know, the stakes are high. Um, we've got a very um, intense election just around the corner. Um, you know, it's something that, as this headline says, uh, you know, viewed as an existential struggle by many, many people on both sides. So, and then a lot of us, you know, um, I think uh, need to prepare ourselves now for uh, it no, no longer just an election day. It's election, not just month, but months. I mean, really, if you think about how voting is going to start um, in, a, in just a few weeks here with all of the absentee and early voting, um, and then, you know, we're definitely almost, almost certainly not going to have a, a final result on election night. Uh, we need to be prepared for um, a, uh, a long drawn out election, uh, you know, month or more. U.S. shows all the signs of a country spiraling toward political violence. Um, it's not too late to bolster our democracy's resilience and pull back from the brink. This this opinion piece says. Uh, so you know there are there are a lot of um, pretty pretty bad um, signifiers right now, um, and I think uh, you know we can all um, uh, benefit from news and media literacy in terms of. Um, saving us from this. Uh, this is not a certainty at all. Uh, I think we can, uh, we can all, uh, you know, help, help avoid this, uh, this um, from happening. 
Um, here's the first thing. Uh, it's important to remember the largest voting block in America is non-voters. So, um, so we need to encourage everybody to get, get involved in the process as much as possible. I think that's a huge part of, of news and media literacy is encouraging that kind of civic engagement, at least at the most basic level of voting. There's obviously a lot more you can do too. But um, if, you, if you can't see it, the uh, folks over on the, the small side here, they have I voted shirts on and then everyone else is saying, we didn't vote because it won't make a difference. Um, well, of course, you know, if all these people got involved, it certainly would. Um, so I think that's an important message for all of us. Um, so uh, we can, uh, we're offered this choice here. Um, we can take the red pill and uh, pull ourselves out of the media matrix um, and hopefully, uh, you know, see things a little bit more clearly. Uh, who am I to, to be, um, be your Morpheus tonight? Um, I literally wrote the books on fake news and news literacy. Um, and most recently, my uh, News Literacy and Democracy book from, from Relage, um, which is what I'm basically going to be uh, proving from here tonight. So I've um, been doing this work for a long time. PhD is from the University of Missouri, and I've been at uh, Boise State for almost 10 years now. Um, and I've been working in this area for uh, you know a couple of decades at least. Um, and, and I've worked as a, as a journalist myself, so I have that background a little bit too. Um, my research and the research of others, but my own work that I'm that I'm uh, you know that I've built all of this off of sort of um, is this idea that that why you know why do we care about this? Uh, well, well, the idea is that news media literacy um, can lead to a lot of good things, basically a lot of pro-social outcomes. And here's here's a list. So people who tend to be more news media literate, who know more about the news media system, about how it all works, they're more motivated to consume news. They're more skeptical of news. They have higher current events knowledge. They have higher levels of political activity. They have higher internal political efficacy, meaning they think their voice matters. They have a say in the system. They have lower endorsement of conspiracy theories, which is a great thing um, in these days, and lower trust in politics, which is maybe maybe not a great thing, but you can also imagine why that might be the case. Um, anyway, these are all considered sort of pro-social outcomes and behaviors that we want. Uh, you know, that we want in democratic societies. And so, um, you know, and we see that they tend to go hand in hand with, with higher news literacy. Um, that makes some sense. These are correlations, um, but, uh, but, but in, in general, that's like, you know, that at least gives us some basis for which to, uh, you know, proceed with this stuff. I think it's important to watch out for a literacy gap that limits the potential for democratic citizenship, right? I mean, um, if we're only letting some people have access to this information, um, that means a lot of people are being left behind and shut out of the process, which is sort of the problem we're hoping to solve here, or at least one problem. First of all, let's just get this out of the way. What is news literacy? Basic definition that, that I operate with, knowledge and skills required for the critical evaluation of news content, as well as the context where information is produced and consumed. So knowledge and skills. So we need to, some basic facts. I mean, if you think about literacy, you know, knowing how to read is built on, uh, I mean, being literate is built on being able, you know, knowing how to read. It doesn't mean you actually read. They're sort of separate steps in the process. So you have knowledge, you have skills for this critical evaluation so we can ask tough questions about what we're seeing. The content, so individual pieces of, of news media, whether it's so, on social media, on you know, uh, traditional print legacy media, on TV, whatever, um, as well as the context. And that's really the, the kind of big picture that I'm gonna talk about tonight, um, where information is produced and consumed. Um, that's what's kind of hidden behind the scenes um, for most people. So, and there's the, this, the 5C approach, context, creation, how, how media messages are created, what the content looks like, how they're circulated, and how they're consumed. So that's where we're headed. Let's get this out of the way. What is fake news? A combination of low truth with high intent to mislead. These messages are designed to gain profit and or power. Um, the good news here is they have, so far, it seems they have wide, wide reach and shallow impact. So all the, a lot of the hoax stuff reaches a lot of people, 
Um, but for the most part, people are consuming a broad enough variety of information um, that they, you know, it doesn't completely change people's uh, worldview. At the same time, when elections are decided by 80,000 votes across three swing states, fake news can have an impact, right? Um, and so, so it is, it is an issue, um, but it's just not the only one. Who consumes fake news? Well, intense partisans. These people are voracious news consumers. They're on the far ends of the spectrum. They're the ones most likely to encounter this false stuff. Um, unfortunately, it's also people who do not use fact-checking sites. I mean, these sites are sort of designed to help people sort through um, what's real and what's not. But unfortunately, the people that are most exposed to fake news are not the ones that are going to Snopes and PolitiFact and uh, those kinds of sites that are designed to help us with all this stuff. So. Uh, we just have to get this out of the way too. The, the, if you haven't heard of it, the CRAAP test stands for currency, relevance, authority, accuracy, purpose. I mean, just some basic stuff. Like everybody needs to know about this by, you know, ideally by junior high or high school at the latest. Um, we need to get this, this, these very basic approaches to news literacy content out in the hands of everybody. Um, how to spot fake news, right? Basic, just very basic ideas about, you know, how to spot um, stuff that's not real. Consider the source, you know, is this, is this a reliable source? Reading beyond headlines, finding out who is the author, are they credible, are they real? Supporting sources, you know, where is this information coming from? What's the evidence? Checking the date, you know, a lot of stuff appears, you know, even though it's uh, years out of date. Um, a joke, you know, make sure it's not satire or comedy. Um, checking our own biases, we'll come back to that, and asking experts. So, um, you know, and hopefully most of you at least and, and others in the world have been exposed to just these basic, ideas about how to sort through um, what's real and what's not. You've also maybe seen stuff like this, the media bias chart, um, where you say, hey, everybody, look, here's the center. Here's what's, you know, giving it to you straight down the middle. Um, here are the, the, here's the stuff on the extremes that maybe you should avoid. Um, you know, this is a good starting point. I think this is okay um, for people who just don't know where to begin. But at the same time, this is very prescriptive. It sort of tells, you know, in, enforces um, a certain worldview on, um, on the media landscape. And, you know, people who already you know, are already stuck on a side might not, um, you know, might not accept this as a, as a very good, um, as a layout for the, for the media spectrum. It's also relative. I mean, the, what's left and what's right in this country is different from uh, the way it is in other countries. So um, that's, uh, that's something to consider too. Bias is often relative. Okay, so how do we get beyond fake news? Well, we ask these five questions. What's happening to real news? How is news constructed? Am I in a filter bubble? Am I the customer or product? Is there a better way to support a well-informed society? So that's where we're headed here. Number one, what's happening to real news? Let's just look at this. Um, and I'm gonna broadly just consider this as the decline of journalism. Um, and so I think this is where we get into media bias. The real bias of media is often the bias towards timeliness, towards visuals, towards the status quo, and, and towards profits. Um, and so it's important to consider that as much as we think about partisan bias. Yelling matches, soft features, this is what we see on TV a lot. This idea of false equivalence or false balance, we get two things that are uh, presented as equal, even though one side has um, you know, plenty of evidence and another side is just people talking. Almost no policy or issue coverage. I mean, these are, this is often devoid. Uh, our, our election seasons are often uh, totally without this stuff. Um, there's a lot of reporting on false information and hoaxes, um, which just plants the seed and puts it out there for people to um, grab hold of. Um, legacy print and public media still, still tend to be the best sources of information. Um, they're just the ones where people tend to be best informed if they are consumers of those. Here's the, here's the historical trend, low diversity and low competition. You know, this has been uh, the trend for, for decades now um, as consolidation has just taken over uh, the media business in, in just like it has in many other areas. So we have a, a media sphere dominated by a very small handful of players 
um, and we haven't even gotten to social media yet. Um, the media landscape, you can, this is, you know, it's messy, but um, you can see there's a, a lot of power and money in the hands of a relatively small number of players here. Um, and then here's just another way of, of looking at it. Uh, here's uh, just um, a, a local uh, issue, McClatchy, who owns the Statesman, um, you know, they've, this is the, the trend as, as newspapers have gotten in trouble um, or have had, you know, had a hard time getting themselves out of the trouble that they've gotten in over the past decade or two, um, the hedge funds have taken over. And so, um, you know, the trend has been uh, pretty bad news. Jobs get cut. Um, they get kind of slashed to the bone even, even more than they already are. People are sort of cautiously optimistic about this particular takeover. Um, they've said that they're not going to cut any jobs and they're going to, you know, abide by union uh, agreements. So um, we'll see how all of that goes. But, um, but anyway, this trend is, you know, has not been a good thing um, by and large. Um, you can see this, this trend in newspaper circulation over many decades going back to 1940, um, you know, from a peak in the 1990s, uh, we're back to our lowest levels ever basically in terms of newspaper circulation. Um, and I, I, you might be surprised that actually that this many people still still do consume actual uh, newspapers. That's that's maybe the real headline here. But anyway, um, the this is important because that means circulation revenue. Um, even though it's climbing slightly, what we've really seen is a huge drop off in ad revenue, which is really the thing that has funded the traditional print and legacy media business over the past century. Um, and so that's that's a huge shift. Um, this is maybe hard to see, but the share of newspaper advertising revenue coming from digital advertising, yes, it's crept up over this uh, 2011 to 2018 period here, but, uh, but it's not nearly enough to support what's been lost from advertising. Um, employment in newspaper newsrooms peaked around 2008, and it's just been a steady decline since then. So you've got half the number of people working today that, that we had uh, maybe a decade ago. Um, uh, produce, you know, independent producers of information, people who don't uh, necessarily have a point of view but are trying to shift, sift through everything that's out there. At the same time, most Americans think their local news media are doing well financially and few are helping to support it. So, um, so people tend to, this is all kind of like obscured from people, they don't know the financial trouble that most local news outlets are in. Um, and, they, and it's just not something that most people are making a priority for, um, for their, you know, where they put their, their, their dollars. Um, and this is just one recent headline, the media learned nothing from 2016. Um, James Fallis says the press hasn't broken its most destructive habits when it comes to covering Trump. I mean, Trump, was a, he's been a very challenging candidate for, um, for the traditional news media and, um, and the, the traditional tactics really haven't worked. So we'll get into what some of those are. For one thing, um, you know, they, uh, they just put him on TV and let him talk. This has been the case since 20, you know, going back well before the 2016 election. Um, and in this graph, you can see the difference between bought and free media in the 2016 and the run up to 2016. That big red block is the amount of free media that Trump got. That means media that he didn't have to pay for. It wasn't it wasn't paid political advertising. It was just free um, access to to the media that um, that he got. And you can see it dwarfs every other candidate, um, especially his Democratic opponent. But uh, you know, this was, uh, he was like kind of, uh, it was kind of fun, right, to watch, to watch this guy uh, talk. And so, um, so news producers just put him on TV and let him, and let him talk. And they're still doing that. And that just doesn't work um, with, with, uh, you know, the, the traditional news reporting methods today. So um, as CBS chair Les Moonves said back then, it, it may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Um, people tuned in. It was crazy. And they didn't, people, know, nobody really knew what to think of it. And so, uh, you know, but in retrospect, maybe that wasn't the best uh, thing for everybody. Um, and again, this is where false equivalence comes in. You know, we get, we get these, uh, 
you know, opposing uh, things, but, and they're treated as if they're equal when in fact they're not. I mean, when you look at the number of true statements made by one candidate versus another, there's a big difference here. So it's just, it's hard to treat them the, with the same kind of tactics and tools for, for reporting. Again, policy issues nearly absent in presidential campaign coverage. Um, we're seeing that again, just like we, we normally do. Um, it's, it's often about the game, the horse race, who's ahead, the strategy, right? Everything but actual issues. Um, and then, and then we get this reporting on misinformation. This was uh, Trump talking about the Obama administration wiretapping him, and and the news reports this stuff. So for one thing, it puts that out there as if it, you know, has it has this air of legitimacy to it. Um, it, it, it plants the seed and lets people hang on to it potentially. Um, uh, better to just not talk about it or simply report it as false information, because um, a lot of the claims he makes are, are without evidence. Here's uh, Steve Bannon, you know, saying it pretty plainly here, um, Democrats don't matter, the real opposition is the media and you just flood the zone and that's the way to deal with it. So that's been a very successful um, political strategy. And again, that's why the traditional news outlets have just not been um, really, really uh, able to handle that. Another great example is uh, with, with global warming. Um, this is, you know, it goes back decades. The science on this issue has been extremely clear um, and only, only, you know, becomes more so every year. Um, and, uh, and yet the news media have, have long treated this as a 50-50 story where we have to balance it with equal uh, points of view on this. So, um, so that's where, uh, you know, these traditional tactics uh, where we just, uh, you know, let, let different, different sides, um, you know, let, the, let them have the floor. It just doesn't work when we need, what we need is to know really the, the truth behind the fact and to know, um, you know, what's really, what's really going on. How is news constructed? So this is number two. Uh, I think Jerry Seinfeld says it well when he says it's amazing that the amount of news that happens in the world every day always just exactly fits the newspaper. Um, you know, that's, a, that's a, re a reference to the print product, but it's of course true on the web or wherever you're getting information. Um, no, these are constructions. These are humans who are putting these products together. They're making active choices about what becomes news. And so it helps to learn a little bit about that process. Steven Pinker similarly says, news is a misleading way to understand the world. It's always about events that happen and not about things that didn't happen. Um, so, you know, that's a sort of obvious, right? But, um, but I think it helps us you know, think about what's what's being left out when we um, when we uh, you know consume too much news. Walter Lippmann wrote about this a hundred years ago. Um, this book, Public Opinion, the world outside and the pictures in our heads. There's this gap between reality and the way it's represented to us, um, and so that's a really important idea for uh, kind of stepping back and taking a critical look at the information we're getting. Walter Lippmann wasn't the first one. Plato, um, in his Allegory of the Cave, got at the same idea. Reality is constructed for us. Um, and so, uh, you know, so we have to be aware of that construction process. Uh, this is, I love this example because it really um, tells, tells the story well. So Lincoln Steffens, he was this crime reporter in, uh, in New York City in the 1890s, and he worked for one newspaper. And they, uh, he, he, they said, you know, we need some, some crime stories. So he, he pretended to be asleep. He developed some new tricks to get um, crime stories. He would, he would feign uh, sleep and, um, and eavesdrop basically on, on uh, what was going on at police stations. Um, and uh, he got all this, you know, all this great uh, crime news that way and started writing all these crime articles. Well, what happened The other competing newspapers were like, why don't we have these crime stories? So they sent their crime reporters out to get the same information. And, you know, all of a sudden all the competing newspapers are all writing about all this crime. You know, if you're a reader, you're like, oh my goodness, uh, you know, we're being overrun by crime. Um, has anything uh, in, you know, uh, has reality actually changed? No, but our, but our perceptions have um, shifted dramatically based on the information we're getting. So I think it's just important to keep, keep that in mind, the, the gap between reality and representation 
and the role our information media play in, um, in how that, what that looks like for us. Getting beyond bias, again, I, I alluded to this earlier, but getting beyond bias, um, political partisan bias. Um, first of all, bias is just a preference for one thing over another, so not all bias is bad. I mean, uh, you know, a bias for human rights and, you know, a bias against slavery, like these are, you know, these are good biases, so that's okay. Some bias is good. But getting past partisan bias and paying attention to structural bias and news frames, these are, these are things that I think we could all benefit from. So first of all, recognizing that objectivity is very much a 20th century invention. You know, we had, we had a partisan, a highly partisan press funded by political candidates. That was the, that was the foundation of the Republic for, for many, uh, many, uh, the first century at least. Um, and so, so it was very much a 20th century invention, partly due to the profession, you know, becoming, uh, wanting to be taken more seriously, but also because of, uh, of business imperatives. Uh, they, they realized that you know, they could be more successful commercially if they appealed to a broad audience rather than a narrow partisan segment of it. So, um, so objectivity is, is largely this historical invention um, to help sell newspapers. Uh, so so the, the problem comes in when we start to think about objectivity as something that should apply to humans. No, no human is objective. We all have backgrounds and points of view. Um, but, uh, but the objective method is really what um, what was is the intention behind this. Um, the idea is that you know sort of to, meant to apply the scientific method to news gathering, um, and that is to say that you know you sort through the evidence and verify it and see what's what is left. Um, no no one ever really expected humans to be uh, objective. So what's important is the method and then the product that results from that. Um, have you done a good job basically verifying? evidence and examining evidence. Um, indexing is, is something we talk about. Uh, that's the idea that news is an index of what officials say. So, and that's sort of a modern trend too. Um, the idea that you just sort of report what officials say. Um, you know, a lot of people talked about that around the 2003 run up to the Iraq war. Uh, you know, we were just sort of hearing, well, here are the, here are the different points of view um, without really sorting through the evidence and giving it a close look. So um, that's, a, that's a, an important media idea to think about. Again, the idea of false equivalence and then this issue of thematic versus episodic framing. Um, the, the, the trend um, is overwhelmingly to present issues uh, as if they are these kind of isolated incidents that happen to people. So, um, so we see that's the episodic frame where we see, you know, here's a homeless person and here's the terrible situation that they're in and here's how they got here. And maybe they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and, you know, here's a great success story in the end or whatever. Um, but what that doesn't do, it doesn't, it doesn't put any larger theme around this issue of homelessness or poverty or whatever the issue is. Um, that's really what we need. We need to understand these things in larger societal contexts and in, uh, in terms of historical trends, the bigger picture. Um, and so again, when we go back to that bias towards timeliness and visuals, you know, we're, we're very focused on the latest um, and newest information. Um, it sometimes neglects that context, and that's really what we need to understand what's going on. Um, I, I, I still pick on um, this story because, uh, you know, this was a really highly sensational thing. It dominated the TV um, for the better course of a day when people thought there might be a six-year-old boy in this balloon. It would be a terrible tragedy if there were. Um, it turned out to be a, a, a stunt by the parents to get on a reality TV show. Crazy story. Anyway, it was, it was, this was great visuals, this bizarre thing flying over the Colorado desert and, um, and you know, it was happening right now. I mean, it really checked all the boxes. So stuff like this um, often dominates coverage when we, when we need to be learning um, much more substantive matters. And then frames, we have to point the camera somewhere. We have to, you know, the frame can only show us so much. So how do we choose to frame things? And just to put that in, in perspective here. I mean, this is important because so much of what we consume is mediated now. Um, this just shows you how, how much our consumption of mediated 
products has exploded over the past century. Um, it's we're, we're immersed in this stuff, um, and so uh, you know this is this is from the Onion, so this is a joke, right? CNN holds morning meeting to decide what viewers should panic for, about for rest of day. So this is a frame. I mean, this is like this is a, a way that news is often um, treated in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, putting putting things in terms of like this is the kind of thing that you're going to freak out about today, and we'll tell you something else tomorrow. Um, this is where you know frames really come in when we see you know you can talk about this in terms of protests. Um, some people talk about it in terms of the riots, right? Very different ways to frame the story and think about it. Um, you know, these have been overwhelmingly uh, peaceful protests happening around the country over the past uh, you know this this summer mainly. Um, no serious harm to people or property. So. Uh, it's a really different uh, narrative, a different frame, depending on um, how you look at it. So, uh, and this applies in a number of ways um, to, to our mediated reality. So, you know, kind of another way to say it is, can the fish think about the water? It's hard to step back and take a look at the way reality is constructed for us. Um, and uh, that happens in a number of ways, of course, um, but, but the way our news and information environment shapes, uh, shapes the way we think is really important. So that's the water that we have to be able to step back and take a critical look at. Okay, we're up to number three, am I in a filter bubble? So what's that? We're gonna learn about that here. And then it really comes down to human psychology um, and the way, the way this uh, butts up against uh, what happens when we get online. This is Stephen Colbert talking about, he, in, he invented this idea of uh, truthiness way before you know, post-truth came along. Um, this idea that you know what you feel with your gut is more important than than what you can actually know with your brain. So, um, and I like how how uh, Harari puts it in *Sapiens*. Today, we may be living in high-rise apartments with overstuffed refrigerators, but our DNA still thinks we are in the savanna. So, it's important just to think about our primitive monkey brains, that our um, our lizard brains, as some people refer to to them, um, that that dictate a lot of our behavior, especially our quick, impulsive behavior. So, um, so that's important. Human psychology. So the online environment takes advantage of basic human tendencies to do these things. Stick with our group, reinforce prior beliefs, ignore or reject conflicting information, prefer emotion over reason or logic, and, and rewards low cognition. So, um, you know, basically uh, not thinking too much um, is, is actually something that gets rewarded, especially when we go online and, and interact there. There are a number of ways to describe this in psychological terms. We don't have time to go through all of these, but I'll highlight a few that I think are interesting. But, you know, it, it often comes down to cognitive dissonance. It's this idea that People just don't, it's uncomfortable to hold competing ideas in your head at the same time. So we wanna avoid that as much as possible. Why would you put yourself into, you know, create, uh, cause yourself to go into, you know, put forth extra effort into thinking when you can avoid that? Um, and so that's what a lot of this, that especially combined with the simplicity bias, we like easy answers, we like simple explanations. Um, that's why conspiracy theories are so popular. That's why, you know, oh, somebody uh, engineered uh, COVID for all of us to, to get um, for some, you know, control mechanism. Um, that's a that's a nice simple explanation. Or there's a satanic uh, pedophilia ring that's you know responsible for, you know what's happening in society. I mean these are you know nice easy um, answers. Um, you don't have to have conspiracy theories. There's plenty of actual conspiracies. Uh, so so find out uh, find out about those uh, <laughs> would be my advice to conspiracy theorists. Here's what confirmation bias is all about. I've heard the rhetoric from both sides. Time to do my own research. Literally the first link that agrees with what you already believe. Jackpot. Right, so um, uh, we, we like to find stuff that, that fits with what we already think we, we know. And then that, re that results in selective exposure, right? So we're much more likely to prefer a reassuring lie over an inconvenient truth. Um, that these are sort of the names that we give to these, these mechanisms and processes um, about how we consume information. 
So filter bubbles, I mean, this is just the basic bubble that we put ourselves in when we uh, consume information. Now, we do this uh, all the time, right? We decide who to be friends with and you know where to work and stuff like that. Um, so, we, so we all live in certain bubbles, um, even in real life. But certainly when we go online, um, we get to pick and choose a little bit where we go. And algorithms have only made that, you know, reinforced that. So, um, so this puts us all in these little kind of niche uh, market audiences, which is what you know uh, social media and online companies prefer. That way, they can you know best target us with um, ads and and um, gather our data and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so understanding filter bubbles and how they work. Now, there's some debate over how strong these the effect of filter bubbles really is. In fact. When some people go online, they're exposed to more diverse information than if they're, say, watching, you know, cable TV news for three hours every night. I mean, that's definitely a filter bubble. So there's, you know, these work in different ways, and it kind of depends who you are and how you're consuming information. But it's easier than ever today to, to go into, you know, one of these bubbles and, and not come out. That's largely because of the algorithm. I mean, this is just, these are just a few things that we kind of know about how the Facebook algorithm works, whether something's going to pop up in your newsfeed. You know, how much interest have you shown in the page? What's the performance of that post? Past performance of the page times the type of content, photos do better, right? Um, and recency, did it just happen? So, um, and there's, you know, tons of factors that go in. We, we just don't know, because these are proprietary black box algorithms. They're hidden from us. We can kind of guess. Sometimes Facebook kind of hints at what, what, they, what they're doing, um, but we just don't know really what's going on. So we, we, um, so we have to at least be aware that these algorithms are the things that are shaping what we see in our as when we go online. And that's true whether we're talking about social media, Google News, I mean, any kind of aggregator of information that's bringing a bunch of stuff together. It just has to have some kind of algorithm uh, unless it's just showing you everything in real time. Um, but but most, most of these kinds of sites have preferred the uh, algorithmic approach. Um, this, is, this came out in 2018 from a Wall Street Journal uh, uh, story where Facebook had shut down a plan to try to make the site less, less divisive. Um, studied how the site polarized users and then just kind of ignored it. So, so they know that their the algorithms are having this effect and they know there are things they could do. They've largely um, avoided doing anything about it. Um, this is again where our psychology comes in. Thinking Fast and Slow is a, is a great um, book by Daniel Kahneman, The Economist. Um, and this elephant metaphor comes from uh, Jonathan Haidt who uh, talks about the, the writer as the kind of rational mind, um, the writer is, you know, this is how we make uh, good decisions. The elephant is the emotional mind, which is much, you know, harder to control. If you're the writer, you're not really in, in control of the emotional mind. Um, you're doing the best you can, um, but, but often, you know, it's out of your hands. The path is environmental factors that influence um, how, we, how we make decisions. But, um, but anyway, the, the system one thinking the elephant is fast and conscious, intuitive and emotional. System two is the rider, that's the slow controlled logical processes that, um, that we go through. So you can see, you can imagine how when we go online, system one off and takes over, right? The elephant just, you know, we just wanna get in there and just, we wanna be heard and we wanna have our say and we wanna, you know, make sure that we get the last word and all that kind of stuff. So, so that's why it's important to just slow down when we go online and just step back um, and, and let things develop over time, see how things play out. Um, you know, most online conversations are not terribly productive anyway. So thinking about um, all of that when, you, when you're in that environment is important. Just a few recent examples, a couple of weekends ago, this was a big deal, the 6% narrative went around um, saying that, you know, because of these comorbidities that the CDC had reported, it meant that, oh, most, day, most deaths um, are not really from COVID, these people were gonna die anyway. Um, well, no, just because there were comorbidities does not mean it was a COVID death. Um, even this report from KTVB doesn't—I don't think it goes far enough to say no. This is not. Um, this is this is not. The six percent thing um, is not uh, accurate. 
it simply reports the misinformation. It doesn't go far enough to tell us that this is misinformation, this is false. Um, similar thing here, when uh, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, um, she, uh, in, the, in, in the context of the Democratic National Convention, went on, gave a short speech, said she, uh, she her, her job was um, to, to second the nomination of um, Bernie Sanders. Um, that was kind of the role that they had given to her. Um, NBC made this tweet saying she gave this, oh, she gave this quick abrupt speech and she didn't endorse, endorse Joe Biden. You know, so that was, that was a good example of how um, a lot of people saw that and, and just like jumped all over her and said, you know, this is, how can you do this? You know, they're spreading this, this uh, they, they didn't explain the full context of what was going on here. And that's part, partly, you know, the result of tweets. You can only say so much. Um, so, uh, so, you know, a couple of things are going on here. Um, they're, they're sort of uh, leaving out this important context. It, it's this piece of misinformation. Um, and then, uh, as she says here, it sparked an enormous amount of hatred. Um, people saw this and, uh, you know, they, they were very quick to react. And, um, you know, if they had just dug a little bit, they could have seen there was, there was certainly more to the story here. Again, Sturgis Biker Rally. This was a big report just in the last week um, that because you know there were all these bikers gathered in uh, South Dakota, they went went back home and spread COVID far and wide. Um, that was based on one uh, one little uh, report that was um, you know played pretty loose with some data and didn't wasn't peer reviewed or anything. Um, you know, so it hadn't gone through the right right kind of process, um, and uh, that dominated headlines. And that's that's an attractive idea to people who wanted to be mad about these unmasked bikers gathering um, and spreading COVID. Um, so of course, of course they spread it far and wide and of course it cost $12 billion in health costs and so forth. Um, but no, if you dug a little bit into the data, it really, you know, the data really did not support the idea that they, that this is really um, what happened. So, um, so again, we just, that's, that's where that elephant takes over and we really have to work hard, especially when the message is congruent with our own points of view, our own ideology. Um, our own worldview. That's when we really have to work hard to step back. Um, the, the more it feels good, the more you got to work hard to, uh, to step back and take a critical look at that piece of information. Am I the customer of the product? This is where we get into some internet economics. We need to understand a little bit about the attention economy. Um, and, and, and people pick on Zuckerberg, um, especially when he wears too much uh, sunscreen and goes surfing. Um, but this guy is so powerful. He holds this, he holds so much power um, because he's got 2 billion users on the social network site. Um, so many of them are active daily users and, um, and he's still uh, the, the major, uh, holds the, the controlling share in Facebook. I mean, he is the guy who's in charge of this operation and he can do a lot to decide, um, you know, what directions it wants to go in. Um, they just unveiled a new uh, climate science initiative, which is great. Great to see stuff like that. Um, I hope it's not too little too late. I, I wish they would do a lot more with the tremendous resources and opportunities they have. Um, so this is where we need to think a little bit about the, the customer versus the product situation. Um, if something is free, especially online, it's, it's usually because we're being, uh, you know, the, the, we are the customer. We are, sorry, we are the, the, the product that's being sold. This is not a new model. This is the broadcast model that goes back 100 years, right? We give you, we give you um, either, uh, you know, fun radio shows or um, public affairs programming, and, and then you watch, uh, you know, you get some soap commercials um, in, in between, um, or a department store ad um, in between, and that's how, you, that's how you pay for it, which is fine. That's like, you know, that's a, that's a perfectly fine uh, business model um, until it becomes so heavily commercialized that, um, that it's counterproductive. So anyway, the social media model is, is the broadcast model on steroids, um, because now not only are they able to gather um, you know, sell ads to us. They can gather so much data and information off of, uh, from us and our behavior and our patterns. 
that's tremendously uh, you know, uh, valuable information that they can then turn around and sell. So uh, the number one thing to remember here is popularity equal, equals profit. And that's, the, that's really what drives the attention economy. Um, trying to keep your eyeballs on the screen as long as possible. Keep you clicking, keep you online, keep you there, keep you scrolling, and keep you, uh, you know, active. So these algorithms, though, are not neutral. They preference, um, you know, what people are talking about, and that's not always a good thing. Um, they they get preference to, you know, um, things that have uh, figured out how to game the uh, the uh, search systems and, um, and and other things. So, uh, so so. This is um, this sort of drives our you know when you when you fit, mesh this with our psychology, you can see how this becomes a problem. Um, the top ten sites get seventy five percent of all traffic and revenue. So even though you know there's uh, billions of websites, it seems like um, it's a total wild west free for all. Anybody can participate theoretically, yes, but in you know who's actually consuming you know and Joe Smith's blog, um, most stuff is still going to to a variety, a small a small handful of um, of these of these you know. These, these sites that get most of the views and clicks. Digital, and, and this is evidence of that digital ad revenue, which has exceeded $124 billion now, um, two thirds of it going exclusively to Google and Facebook, including 99% of all growth. So almost all new ad revenue being made on the internet is going to Facebook or Google. So that's a monopoly, I mean, if you've ever heard of one. Um, there's so much concentrated power in that, and it really shuts out. That's part of why journalism is struggling so much is because so much of that ad revenue is going to these um, these content providers and and they don't even produce anything of uh, anything original they don't they don't provide anything um, other than an empty shell basically I mean Facebook is just a shell and we fill it with content um, we do or you know other people that are gathering and reporting information so I think that's important to remember sponsored content native advertising are just you know more ways to uh, to, to sell access and um, often the viewer does not know when they're viewing sponsored content or advertising that is meant to look like um, news content. Um, it's just kind of slipped in there. It's, it's usually labeled, but that, you know, most people still don't, uh, they don't identify it. And then behavioral targeting, that's what they do with all that data. They know how to, how to reach people um, with the kinds of things that are gonna keep them clicking. So it's, that's where the algorithms just drive us further and further down these rabbit holes. One example I often point to is Dylan Roof. This was a nice kid who wasn't destined to become a murderer, a, murderer, uh, a racist murderer, um, but he went down this internet rabbit hole because uh, he started searching about black and white crime and he learned all of this uh, terrible stuff that's uh, really not based in reality at all. It led him to kill nine people, in, uh, nine African-Americans in a church in South Carolina. So, I mean, this is where this stuff really becomes, um, becomes real. Um, you know, that was not predestined at all. And Google could have done a much better job of uh, making sure that he didn't go down that, that rabbit hole, um, that those links, uh, those clicks didn't, didn't lead him there. The algorithms didn't lead him there. So, and they've done a lot. They've gone a long way. A lot of a lot of sites are doing their best to clean up their act, but it's often, you know, in response to to terrible events like that. So, it's important to understand these are our new gatekeepers, and we need to be aware of them and how they work, and how they influence um, what we consume. You can go on Facebook and see your ad preferences. You can see what Facebook thinks of you, um, what they think that they know about you. Uh, of course, there's more behind the scenes that we don't know about, but um, but you can go in there and see a lot about. Um, I think a lot of people are surprised to know that this even exists um, and that you can go in and see what, um, what they think they've gathered about you based on your behavior uh, online. A lot of people like to talk about how, oh, that, that, I, I just can't believe it. I, was, I said this thing in the car and then you know, I got home and I saw this, this ad or this post um, and people just assume they're being listened to. But that's what's amazing. I mean, so far, most of the you know, people at least mostly agree that um, 
that, that it's not that bad. They're not, they're not literally spying on you, but it's almost worse because that, that just means they don't have to. They know you so well. They can, so, they can do such a good job of predicting your patterns and your behavior that um, it feels like they're listening. Um, they just know you that well. So it's kind of crazy. Uh, again, here's Google and Facebook dominating the digital ad market. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that in, even in Congress, on um, both sides of the aisle, uh, there's been political interest in doing something about these companies, um, often for different reasons, but um, they're both kind of, you know, under the microscope right now. I suspect eventually um, we'll see some sort of regulation that will uh, crack down on, on um, either the content that they share or the way that their organizations are structured um, with some, some kind of breakup. We'll see. As Ben Dagdikian wrote, you know, back in 2004 about the media environment, this gives each of the five corporations and their leaders more communication power than was exercised by any despot or dictatorship in history. I mean, think about that. That gives, you know, thinking about the amount of power that are concentrated in the hands of very few uh, content providers, um, that's a big deal. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't want that in the hands of, you know, someone who is, who is known to be a bad actor. Um, why, do, why do we allow it? Oh. Is there a better way to support a well-informed society? I like to think so. Um, I think you know we can certainly look to other countries to see how they um, they do certain things in terms of regulating content and in terms of uh, supporting public media and other kinds of um, non-commercial uh, information environments. I think that's really important. So um, so there's a number of uh, number of things that we can do here, um, but we have we have to face the the fact that we've produced a fairly uncritical public, and that and that maybe sounds um, mean. Uh, but but that's just uh, mostly we we have low information citizens. We haven't we haven't really asked people to get really engaged with uh, the political process, with um, you know with what happens in civic life, um, and our news media are not doing a great job of informing people even when they do pay attention. So first of all, though, in a high choice environment, people tune out. I mean, um, you think about the audiences for primetime TV. I mean, people are much more likely to tune in to sitcoms and dramas on you know broadcast networks than they are to to watch even cable news networks. Um, the audiences for those are, are small by comparison. So, um, you know, and now we just have a tremendous amount of array of choices. So it's easier than ever to just ignore what's happening in uh, public affairs completely. Um, and so, and you kind of can't blame people because it's messy and it's ugly. And, um, you know, you certainly uh, can understand why, why people want to avoid all the ugliness. Um, so we need, we need to create an environment where people can come to come to this, uh, you know, be invited into these conversations, um, can be presented with, you know, important public affairs information about what's happening in the world, can help them understand why they should care, and can help them figure out what sort of actions and behaviors they want to take based on that information. So um, helping people understand the difference between news and opinion is really important. That's always been a challenge. Um, even when in the print newspaper, news is clearly on one page, opinion is clearly on another page. Even then, that, that's been hard. And, and online, everything just, you know, falls in the news feed. It's, it's even harder to differentiate types of content. Um, understanding conflicts of interest, uh, that's really important, knowing that you know, there's a difference between independent um, producers of information that don't have a stake in what they're reporting on versus um, the people that are telling us um, things about things that you know, they, uh, they have a vested interest in, so that's a big difference. In general, we, we have this depoliticized hyper-commercial commercial society reinforced by our media system. So it may seem weird to say depoliticized. I mean, people seem so politically active right now. But again, remember that largest voting bloc non-voters. I mean, uh, it's so easy to, um, to tune out of this process. And then, um, and then we often, the most, you know, we hear more, more from the extreme voices than maybe we really need to. Maybe we need to hear some of those um, more, uh, more moderate voices to help us understand the different, at least to understand the different ways people are approaching information and thinking about things. This is just one study that gets at this idea, lazy, not biased. Um, susceptibility to partisan fake news is better explained by lack of reasoning. 
humans are cognitive misers in that resource demanding cognitive processes are typically avoided. Again, that goes back to this idea that cognitive dissonance is uncomfortable and why would we put ourselves in these awful positions if we could avoid it? So, um, so this means that you know, people aren't necessarily uh, uh, engaging in this selective process where um, they're just trying to find information that only fits with what they believe. They're just not really interested in, in doing the work. Um, and, and again, who can blame them, uh, especially when you've got a million other things to attend to. So, um, so I think it's important to think about that too. Uh, again, our media system, we need to create something that will help people with this, not make it harder to navigate. Um, just a little bit of history, if I may. Uh, how did we get here? Marconi, um, who invented, uh, they called it wireless back then. Um, you know, there are a number of people involved in this, but uh, he was just one. Um, this idea of path dependence is important because the path that we, that we started on way back then um, led us to, to our media system that we have today. The QWERTY keyboard is a good example. They, they invented it to slow down our typing so all these keys wouldn't jam up on this, these old typewriters. We don't need that today, but we still have it because it's what we're used to and it's what we have on keyboards everywhere. Um, when radio came along, we had to figure out how to deal with this natural resource. Um, it was part of the electromagnetic spectrum, the ether, they called it. And so uh, when the Titanic sunk, people said, oh, we need to figure out a way to standardize the, uh, the, the radio communication system. That was really the first attempt to, to seriously regulate um, that, that system. And so, um, so even though, you know, some people said uh, we're indeed upon the threshold of a new means of widespread communication of intelligence, profound importance from the point of view of public education and public welfare, um, you know, what we got is often hyper-commercial and has nothing to do with the kind of public affairs information that people need. This is unfair. I'm picking on the Kardashians. Reality TV has its place, of course, but, um, but the system we have today is, is a, it's a holdover from, from where we, uh, where we were 100 years ago when, um, when basically commercial broadcasting became the, the default uh, for how to um, you know, regulate and create a media system. So we got this. Uh, the, the FCC chair um, in the 80s under Reagan, he famously said, television is just another appliance, it's a toaster with pictures. So just dispense with this idea that we need to treat information in any special way. We don't need to regulate it. We don't need to do anything special with it. It's just a product to be bought and sold. Um, of course, it's much more complicated than that. For one thing, toasters don't receive First Amendment protection. There's a lot more to it, um, but, but we need to get beyond this idea that, uh, that, that the toaster is, uh, I mean, the television is just like a toaster. Um, so the bottom line, the question is never to regulate or not to regulate. The question is always, does this regulation improve the system of free speech and the condition of democracy? I really like that idea. It just, it just shows you that you know, we're going to have regulations, we're going to have policy, we're going to have laws. Um, but you know, what, what are they, who are they really serving? Um, are, they, are they supporting a broad public interest? Or are they serving a narrow set of special interests? Um, the idea of social capital, I think, is really important in the context of uh, you know, finding a better way. Um, strong ties versus weak ties. These sociologists talk about this. These lunch counter sit-ins that happened during the civil rights movement, you know, this these were people exercising their strong ties. When people go out and protest, they're they are developing strong ties with other humans that they're closely linked to. Um, versus weak ties, this is what we see online. Um, and those have their place and they can be very important. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot more to, um, to, to, to developing uh, the, the way that we bond with other humans. Um, than just interacting with them online. So, so developing that social capital, that's how we create, I think, um, productive social change where people are, are um, you know, able to really participate in what's going on. Um, so, okay, let's wrap up. I know this has been a long, a long uh, talk with a lot of information. Um, there's just so much uh, that, that I think uh, people 
you know, need and want to know about. So um, anyway, just to sum up, you know, these are the, just some basic uh, news literacy tips. First of all, read. I mean, reading gets you more context and more um, perspective usually than, um, than other formats. Um, so, but also certainly reading beyond headlines, knowing your source, varying your source, separating news from opinion, getting to the, as close as you can to the original report, not somebody's spin or commentary, but where did it actually come from? A lot of what we see, especially on TV, is just riffing off of other people's reporting. So get to the original report, follow a story over time, don't make snap judgments, challenge your own biases, learn as much as you can about how the media environment actually works, and then take that, you know, be responsible in your own consumption and production. We're all producers these days when we go online. Um, just a few more things, you know, I think it's important to limit our social media use and vary our sources. Uh, differentiate between singular facts and complex realities. So knowing the difference between just the fact that, um, you know, a, a, a peace deal was signed today, which is very exciting. There's a lot more to the story, though, behind um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? And so understanding the difference between what happened today versus a large um, historical narrative is really important. I think we do have to get better at listening. I think to some extent listening, you know, it only gets us so far, but, but I, we do need to do a better job of understanding each other. Getting off, off the internet and interacting in real life is important. I think it's important not to be afraid of, to talk about tough issues, um, to talk values first and then positions. Find common ground in terms of what we can all agree on. I mean, people want their kids to go to good schools. They want parks. They don't want to sit in traffic all day. I mean, there are a lot of things that we can agree on. Um, let's start there and then figure out um, what our, our positions are politically. Make active consumption choices. Um, don't just kind of avoid the doom scrolling as much as you can. It's hard. Um, but don't be a passive consumer of this stuff. Take an active role and then do your own part to spread awareness and empowerment about all of this stuff. I think, you know, we can, uh, we can, we can uh, really bring the internet back to the sort of democratic ideals and promise that, you know, people initially thought of it uh, in, in terms of. And so, um, but it's going to take a concerted effort to do that. I think, again, the stakes are high. This is just one issue. Um, you know, inequality is, is also a really important issue. It's a problem when we've got, um, you know, political uh, officials who, uh, you know, whole, are just deniers of the, of the basic science. That's a, big, that's a big problem. And I don't know how to be nonpartisan about that. We have to just kind of deal with that. Um, I'd like to, you know, just to, for a positive uh, note here to end on, the, the Montreal Protocol is really interesting because it's a place where the U.S. really led. I mean, there are a lot of complex reasons for how this played out, but this is when they discovered this, this thing that was happening to the ozone layer um, and, and really identified uh, CFCs, remember those old hairspray cans, um, and other, other sources of CFCs as, as um, the culprits. And, and we led in this Montreal Protocol to ban those substances and others that were contributing to this. Um, and as a result, um, the the hole in the ozone layer has at least stopped growing and, and is now even shrinking. So, um, so the U.S. can lead in these areas and has in the past. I think we just have to be able to, uh, you know, do that again if we want to avoid um, negative effects like um, like the one that we identified. Also, you know, think about the World War II mobilization effort. I mean, that's the kind of effort it's going to take. I think to combat some of the problems we're dealing with, um, we really need to uh, figure out how to help people get on board with. Um, you know, just to, just finding these questions important and dealing with uh, dealing with the complex realities a, a little bit better than than we have so far. I'd like to point out to you, you know, a lot of these are policy choices. This is the this is the inequality issue in the U.S. You know, you can see how the top one percent um, their their um, income has grown dramatically, while the bottom fifty percent has has dropped off. Um, but you compare that to Western Europe, you know, those numbers for them have largely uh, stayed the same. So the, again, these are policy choices. Um, we, we've made decisions, active decisions about how to, how to distribute wealth. Um, and so there are, you know, it's important to recognize that there are different ways of doing this. 
and um, and that's the starting point for the conversation I think. Um, again, so just some some final you know news literacy agenda for you: cultivating your news diet, thinking critically about what you're going to consume, make sure you're getting enough information, vegetables, cultivating your own critical mind, building your knowledge about the things we've talked about, exercising your sociological imagination, just stepping back and asking why why are things the way that they are? Do they have to be this way? Is there another way? Spreading critical awareness, participating in civic life. I'll end there, and um, I'm eager to hear um, what kinds of uh, comments and questions y'all have. Thanks for listening. I know that was a lot. So thank you for that wonderful presentation. It was definitely informative. Um, you definitely covered a lot of different topics. Which I, my lighting is very weird right now. Sorry. Um, it definitely covered a lot of different topics that I think were very useful. So for the first question, are there fact checkers within the realm of fake news generators? Um, within the realm of fake news generators, I mean, I think I think that certainly Snopes is a great example of that. I mean, Snopes is uh, kind of, they've been around for a really long time. Their uh, mission is to you know spot fake news and hoaxes online and and uh, and highlight them. So. Um, uh, like I mentioned, uh, PolitiFact, there's a number of um, places like that. You can just Google fact-checking fact sites, um, and, and there's a whole bunch of them where you can turn to, uh, uh, it's, they're great resources. You can just kind of look through them and see what are the kinds of, what are the latest um, fake news kinds of hoaxes that they've been spotlighting. Um, and you can also plug in search terms to find, you know, if you, if you come across something that looks like it might be suspect, just plug it in there, and, um, and they have, you know, there's a, you, can, you can find results. I hope that's I hope that answers the question. I think it did. Um, and then uh, what do you have as a recommendation to get out of our own filter bubbles, especially with social media sites using algorithms? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, some people recommend that you like in Facebook, you can still change the settings to most recent instead of uh, top stories. So you can you can kind of gain the algorithm a little bit. And that way, it'll it'll show you everything that appears in real time. But um, but I'm not sure that's the you know that's sort of overwhelming in a different way. So um, so I think uh, one thing you can do is um, is just try to uh, limit your social media use for one thing. Um, get news from the actual original places that are producing that information um, and give them your money if you can because uh, it costs money to produce produce information. So um, you know and and I don't like telling people where to get their news. You can you can decide for yourself what what works for you. But um, but that's one way uh, to get to get around that. Um, reading reading broadly and widely as much as possible uh, is, I think, a, a good way to just avoid the algorithms as much as you can. There are also there are search engines. You know, there are search engines other than Google that um, that you know Duck Duck Go is one of them. There are places that they don't collect your data and they um, and they don't don't um, prioritize things in in quite the same way. So. And then do people have a uniform definition of news? Uh, good question. I mean, I think, you know, the one I use is, is broad. I mean, I think we all talk, I mean, it's called a news feed, but if you look at what's in your news feed, I mean, that could be basically anything. So, I mean, um, news is, has become so, uh, so broad in terms of um, any kind of information these days. So, so I think, I do think that kind of news is separate from the journalistic process, which is a process of news gathering, verifying information, conducting original reporting, um, that's that's certainly different from what is broadly conceived of as news. So um, I think yeah, the news these days is just anything that people find interesting and important, um, and that's uh, that's not traditionally, you know, it wasn't traditionally thought of uh, in that broad sense. But I think that's kind of where we are now. 
and then with uh, like the endless scroll on social media and stuff like that, uh, how many people would you say think that they're informed just by reading the headlines, even if the headlines can be provocative and misleading? Yeah, I mean, I think you can you can get a sense of what people are talking about, what are kind of the hot stories of the moment. Um, but uh, but yeah, if you if you if that's all you do, you're probably not coming away um, with a lot of great information. So I just saw a Pew a new Pew Research study that's a good place for um, public opinion uh, research, and they um, you know they they put people in groups in terms of where are you most likely to get your information. Social media users were at the bottom, um, right down there with local TV viewers. Um, if that was your main source of information, you were the, among the least informed, um, as opposed to people that are getting their information from new, uh, either print print news or print um, apps and, um, or sorry, news, news, news websites and apps. So um, those kinds of more traditional news organizations um, tend to be where people become better informed. And then do you have any ideas of how people can um, financially support local news outlets compared to like CNN? And like the more yeah. large scale ones. Right. I mean, if you can support your local outlets, like that's kind of the, the bread and butter for um, for the, the media system. Um, you know, they're they're basically not going to get their money anywhere else. Um, CNN's going to be OK. And, uh, and, and you know, um, those national outlets are, are, are going to do OK um, for the most part. The New York Times has done a good job of weathering the storm. You know, they've uh, they've turned to digital subscriptions and um, they've uh, they've kind of come through. Um, in a, in a, you know, on a good, a good financial note. Um, but it's the local news outlets where, I mean, they call them news deserts, places that have just dried up when the local news has dried up completely, it's not even available anymore. So um, fortunately, we're not one of those. Um, we have, we actually have two competing news dailies here. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, they need our support. I think um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be hard for them to, uh, you know, uh, find their way with, uh, especially with the consolidation that we see online, the, the difficulty they're going to continue to have generating uh, digital ad revenue. It costs a lot, basically, to, to staff a newsroom. And so, um, so the loss of advertising dollars is going gonna, is gonna to continue to be hard for them to make up. So, um, you know, a lot of people have really great ideas about nonprofit and non-commercial media. Um, there's, there's lots of ways we could provide tax incentives for nonprofit outlets. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a whole host of ideas out there. Um, for, for ways uh, to, to do better. Um, Texas Tribune, Voice of San Diego, ProPublica, there's a lot of models for doing non-commercial, non-profit, non-partisan, independent reporting. Um, and that's on top of our traditional public media systems, PBS, NPR. I mean, we could certainly fund those um, more fully than we do now. Um, they basically have to beg for money, you know, from uh, viewers like you and, and grants and donations. Um, so, so I think uh, just from a, a public policy standpoint, we could, we could certainly do better with, with how we support those. And then I know you mentioned the Kardashians briefly, but do you think like the advent of like reality TV and that like just sensational just for the ratings form of media has influenced um, the way normal media is reported since I'd argue that pretty much any online news site will at least have something about the Kardashians mentioned somewhere. Right. Yeah. And, and it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with those, those kinds of uh, diversions and entertainment media. Um, and certainly we've had, you know, things like that have been around um, for a long time. Um, but now it's just kind of on steroids. There's just so much of it. And, and it comes at a time when our public affairs information is dwindling. So um, that's why we call it this high choice media environment. Uh, and it's just so much easier to tune out of the important stuff 
um, and and you know just you were just sort of a wash in the in the light the light entertainment fair. So I think that's just why it's um, you have to work harder if you want to not be uh, not be taken in by that. So it's important to find a balance, like anything. You know, I mean, it's of course it's fine to consume entertainment media, um, but but it's important to find find a balance with that and um, being an informed citizen as much as possible. And then circling back to our first question about the fact checking. Um, we had some clarification. Are there fact checkers for like fake news outlets specifically that like either make sure the news is fake itself or like make sure that at least like there's somewhat fact or anything? Like, do they employ fact checkers on their end? Do fake news outlets employ mm -hmm. fact checkers? I'm not sure. I mean, I would say no. I mean, the, the whole point is to uh, provide false information and, and usually to deceive people in some way or another. So I think, um, I think that's the, uh, that's the problem. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I understand the question. And the, so then, would you be able to repeat the name of your books that you authored that you mentioned early in this presentation? Oh, I'd love to, yes. Um, News, Literacy, and Democracy is, uh, is my latest and, um, that's probably that's probably the one I'd recommend if you want to get a sense of uh, what I've talked about tonight. Um, so that's available widely. And then, how do you recommend that we hold mainstream media news sources accountable to the citizenry instead of playing the sensationalism game um, and the distorted both sides game? That's a great question. I mean, there's a couple approaches. I, again, I mean, we are consumers of this stuff, and so we have a say in what we consume. So I think that's important to exercise our agency and just say, just turn it off, you know, um, say, I'm not, I, I'm just not willing to, to tolerate this. It's not doing uh, what I need it to do. And so I'm going to go elsewhere. I'm going to find better information um, somewhere else. And then there's also the public policy approach and that's where it requires collective action, but, but we need to, um, you know, be able to uh, uh, work together um, to agree that we need to do a little better with our creating a, a more diverse and robust um, public media environment, non-commercial media environment, so that so that it doesn't have to um, sort of uh, appeal to that sort of lowest common denominator that's going to reach as many people as possible. And then what measures can media take to avoid just kind of an endless ramble of news that might keep people from tuning um, out on like election night or other political events. Yeah, I think that's tough. I mean, you can have the greatest news outlet in the world, and if it's boring and people don't want to pay attention, then uh, what good does it do, right? I mean, uh, and so uh, so I do think, you know, news outlets have to work to engage people. That's important, and that's why it's, you know, good journalists are important. Um, you know, uh, so so I don't think there's a, there's an easy answer to that, but I think that's that's basically it. That's, you know, we need people that are trained in um, with the tools of the trade so that they know how to gather information, but they also know how to present it in a way that's going to, um, you know, bring people in and bring people to the conversation. And then in, towards the middle of your presentation, you mentioned like the media monopolies uh, with a lot of those big names that we see a lot in the movie theater. Um, do you know if there's been any effort, uh, what, whether it be a ground or grassroots or like top down to break up those monopolies since there has been such a consolidation in media companies? 
Yeah, there's a huge movement for, for media democracy broadly, and that's the idea that, um, that we need to create a more democratic media system, democratic small d, right? Not, not the political party, but democratic in the sense that it's, you know, equal and open to all basically, and that it welcomes all voices, and it really makes room for, um, for, for different points of view. And it provides us the information that we need to participate in, in democratic life. So um, yeah, there's, there's uh, all kinds of uh, groups and, and organizations that are, um, you know, advocating for that kind of stuff out there. Free Press is one of them. You might, you might check out Free Press. That'd be a good place to start.